Welcome to Craft Lit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 26. Tarry with me a while and wait. Well, good evening to you. I'm actually podcasting Wednesday night because my days have gotten so complicated, um, which is not a bad thing. It's just, it's just the way things are. And we have a jam-packed show for today. I have to say I'm very happy because I calculated that I can take three weeks and do The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. So it will be done just in time for Halloween. And I am very excited about that. I love The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. But before we get to our friend Ichabod, I have I have a ton of stuff this week. I'm so excited. I feel like I'm, I'm finally starting to get my sea legs here in Tucson. And I think I'm also feeling good because... Um, well, for one thing, I went to the Fiber Festival in Bisbee with Kate and Zora this weekend and my two boys, and we had a great time, and the kids had a great time, and they got to pet a llama and, you know, all that good kind of fibery stuff. Although my two-year-old lost my favorite hat, which I'm sure some of you will empathize with. It's a bad thing to lose a favorite hat, and it's it's lost, lost. I've contacted all the people, and it it's done, gone. So that kind of was drag. But the good part is it's getting cooler. It's been in the low 80s, low to mid 80s this week so far. And it's it's downright chilly in the morning. There's dew on the windshield. It's just I'm starting to feel human again. And my body is is slowly stopping screaming for the fall because it's getting a little taste of it in the morning. So that's nice. I've been spinning more. I've been knitting more. I finished the Faroese shawl. But um, but first, I actually wrote everything down today because I have so many things to talk about. I got some really, really fabulous comments on, on the two blogs, one on the Blogspot blog and, and some on the, the Libsyn blog as well. And I can't tell you how wonderful it is to have a conversation with you because, you know, otherwise I'm just this freakish person sitting in a room by myself talking to a computer screen and i i feel like you know like we're actually having a conversation when you write back to me so it's it's been fun and one of the comments this week was um that the beauty and the beast thing is kind of creepy and you have to go on my blogspot blog to see um she actually like copied out text from the story it was kind of like a mini essay it was brilliant and her argument was that it's kind of creepy because it seems like what the story is saying is, you know, sit tight, stay put, be a good girl, don't complain, don't ask for what you want, and you'll be just fine. You know, kind of this, it's kind of the ugly side of the Protestant work ethic. It's that, you know, shut up and take it. And I was thinking about that. I wrote back and said, yes, yes, you know, after I stopped the podcast and was converting it. And then I, I listened to it on iTunes just to make sure it's it's fine. It was kind of creepy weird. And then I thought about it more and I thought, well, maybe what this French woman was trying to say was, if you're a good girl or a good person, 
in that you look beyond the physical. You look beyond the, the superficial stuff that everybody else looks at. Even if you think all you're doing is, in Beauty's case, being a good girl and doing as she's told and shutting up and taking it, really what she was doing was she was being virtuous by dint of looking beyond you know, looking, she did make excuses for the beast. You know, he's slow and he's this and he's that, but he's a good, well, you can't say person. I almost said person. He's a good beast. Um, that maybe, maybe that was the point that, you know, good packages come in strange wrapping sometimes. Um, but it is, there's no question, a little creepy. There's some stuff in that story that's very, very dated. And um, certainly glad that it's it's not the world we live in any longer. Although we were talking today at work about how nice it would be to wear hats and gloves sometimes. Gloves keep your hands really clean on the subway. And hats, we're thinking about like Harrison Ford in the first Indiana Jones movie right now. Hats just look great, especially on some people like Harrison Ford in 1980. God, what was it? 1987? I'm so old. Anyway, so that was the Beauty and the Beast conversation. The, um, the other thing that's happened this week is I found some really cool sock pages. One of the little Yahoo groups that I'm on, they were throwing out some really cool sock sites that I hadn't seen before, including one from Vermont where you can buy mismatched socks. They're sibling socks. The pattern is the same, but the yarn color progression is related but different. And if you buy kids socks from this woman, I think they're 18 bucks for a, a trio of kids' socks, you get three because kids are forever losing their socks. The socks are really cool looking. They look a little bit like the um, Fair Isle, the cool Fair Isle socks that are on the Socks That Rock website. And um, and so I'm going to put a, a link to that in the show notes. There are a couple other sock pages that are just interesting, you know, how to do it kind of sock pages that I thought you might be interested in. So that was very cool. And then, you know, I finished my Faroese shawl. And I started, because I had to start something immediately, I started uh, a pair of socks, which I'll talk about in a second, and a sweater, which I'll also talk about in a second. But now, now we're in trouble because I have, I have finished the Faroese shawl, but I have to dye it because the sore gallery this year is all about color. And right now my shawl is gray. It's beautiful, but it's gray. And the problem was when I spun the wool, well, when I made the bats on my drum carter and then spun the wool, I didn't realize that there would be any color change. And if you look on the picture for the show notes from last week, you will see the center part of the shawl, the last part that I knit, is a decidedly darker color than the bottom edge of the shawl where all the pretty lace work is. I had originally wanted to dye it so that it would be kind of a green in the upper middle going out to a dark blue, going out to a dark purple, having the darkest color at the bottom and the lightest color at the top. And all of these colors are, are colors that don't make me look washed out. So it really doesn't matter which direction I go in. But now that I see the dark yarn is at the top, I think I need to start with the dark purple. And I've, I've done some really lousy paintings of what this would look like. And if I can scan them on my mom's evil Hewlett Packard scanner printer, don't get me started on Hewlett Packard. I hope, I hope all of you have had better experiences with Hewlett Packard stuff than I have, and and I hope someone from Hewlett Packard is listening, and can 
tell me why they're so lousy. But anyway, if I can scan the little paintings that I've done, I will, um, I'll show you my ideas and then maybe somebody would have a better idea than, than what I've come up with. But this week is going to be all about dying. Um, the, the socks that I started are the pom Pomotamus socks from Nitty. And if you haven't attempted the Pomotamus pattern, I have to tell you, it is easy. It looks so blasted difficult. And I'm, I'm messing with the pattern right, left, and center. I'm doing it toe up. And I'm kind of making up where I'm putting the, the uh, pattern piece because I'm doing a toe up, but I'm putting the pattern on the instep on the upper part of my foot. And then after the turned heel, I will continue with the full pomatomous sock all the way up to the, the top. I've got two skeins of some blue, green, purple Lorna's laces. Can you tell what my favorite colors are? And um, they're coming out great. So I'll I'll try and put up a, a picture. I'm very happy with them, which doesn't usually happen for me with socks that I'm making for myself. I'm almost always thinking, oh, I should have done that better. The other thing I said I was working on was a sweater. This is a baby sweater for a friend of mine who is, he's, he's just odd. He's a, a production artist, a graphic artist at the, um, the curriculum house that I work at. And, you know, pierced and tattooed and and he's fabulous and he always looks like he kind of rolled out of bed badly that morning but he's married and he and his wife are pregnant and I am knitting a black hoodie with a big skull on the back for their new baby because because that's just what Jim and his wife would want and so I found this fantastic skull pattern at the dominatrix site and uh, Jen was kind enough to um, to make the skull pattern free for me and a, a couple of other people. So if you are at all interested in a spectacular skull pattern, uh, especially as Halloween is approaching, I should tell you that uh, the pattern I'm using, oh, let me find it, is from Hand Knit Holidays, and it's the little hoodie pattern for kids. It's at the back of the book. I'm, if I try and get it, I'm going to make all sorts of noise on the um, the headphones. But um, but it fits, the skull fits the back of the sweater as long as you shorten it by about, oh, what is that, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, about 12 rows. And so I've kind of drawn my new lines over the, um, the skull on the printout that I made. And it's, it's coming out great and it's moving along at a lovely clip. So I'm very excited because I'm going to have a big skull that I'm going to be working on in public and right before Halloween. That's so cool. So I have this skull pattern, which I've linked to, and I'm making this skull sweater. And at some point I will put, uh, I will put that up. The other thing I wanted to tell you about is this week, I think I must've made a comment about how much iTunes sucks last week. And, um, I must have said something about iPods in general because I got a couple of really, really useful emails and comments from people telling me that they not only don't use iTunes, but they don't have iPods either. But the important part is instead of using iTunes, they have other podcast aggregators. These are places that will collect podcasts for you and download them for you so you can subscribe a different way. So once you have my RSS feed, which you can get at the libsyn.com, um, craftlit.libsyn.com site, you can 
use somebody else's aggregator. So I'm going to link to those aggregators for you. So um, so if you're sick of iTunes, like I think I am, um, you'll be able to do that. I did find out what the problem was with the iTunes feed. There were four episodes that had weird, it wasn't HTML coding, it was RSS coding. And I'm only just starting to learn RSS. And it was weird things like I had imported my text for the podcast show notes from Microsoft Word. And in Microsoft Word, I had used smart quotes. Those are quotation marks that curve in and or out, depending on where they fall in the sentence. Smart quotes and the internet don't like each other or at least RSS feeds don't like them. And so every podcast show note that I had that had one of these banned quotation marks was glitching up the feed to iTunes. Go figure. It it almost makes sense to me. Uh, but it's certainly obnoxious. So that's that's what happened. And it's been fixed. It's been fixed for almost a week now. So I hope if you were having problems, that you are no longer having problems. You shouldn't be having problems now. So yippee. <sighs> so that is all of the important me stuff. Well, the other news is that I finally um, got my brain back. <laughs> and I found the promo for Lime and Violet. And if you haven't listened to them before, now I think you probably will. Hi, I'm Violet. And I'm Lime. And we're Lime and Violet. We're the knitting podcast for the yarn obsessed. Join us every week as we indulge our obsession with socks and fondle new yarns for your listening pleasure. You can find us online at... Oh, don't forget. What, Violet? We talk a lot about yarn stores, too. Yeah, we do talk about a lot about yarn stores. You can find us oh, online Lime, at... Lime. Yes, Violet. We talk a lot about our dogs, too. Yeah, we do talk about the dogs a lot. Find us online oh, oh, oh. at... Oh, and, and we stalk Brenda Dane. Yes, we do stalk Brenda Dane. You can find us online oh, at... Oh, oh, before I forget. What, Violet? You know what else we talk a lot about? What else do we talk about, Violet? We talk a lot about your love life, Lime. <laughs> yes, we do, don't we? It's like a portable stitching bitch. But you never have to bring cookies. But you can send them to us. We like cookies. <laughs> Find us online at limeandviolet.blogspot.com. That's L-I-M-E-N-V-I-O-L-E-T dot blogspot.com. Or on iTunes. We'll see you there. And everybody here is back. And so that was Lime and Violet. So now we can, let's see, I think I've gone through everything I wanted to tell you about. Um... Washington Irving and the Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Washington Irving and I met each other when I was in grad school. And I had uh, started teaching American literature in earnest, which is funny because American literature was my least favorite anything when I was a kid. And I think it was just because I had lousy teachers. And then I, I kind of got shoved into teaching American lit when I was a student teacher. And that was okay. But then two things happened at once. I had to redo my teaching credential. I had a teaching credential from California. And when I moved to New York, they're like, yeah, that doesn't really count. You have to have a master's. And I said, yeah, but I have like 80 post-baccalaureate credits. Doesn't that count? And they're like, mm, no, 
you need to pay New York schools money rather than California schools. So I had to go back and do it all over again. As a consequence, I went to the Gallatin School at NYU, New York University, which is a school that allows you to kind of pick your own major. So I didn't have to retake any of the classes that I had taken already. I got to take all the ed psych and the sociology and statistics and, you know, cool things that I hadn't taken before. And I decided that my master's, because I was going to write a thesis, even though teachers don't really have to, I was going to write my thesis on American literature textbooks and the stories that the textbooks tell if you read them cover to cover. And it was fascinating because since 1985, this was looking at textbooks from 1985 through 2000, the stories the textbooks told changed considerably. As I was reading textbook after textbook after textbook, I noticed that Washington Irving was always anthologized. And usually they anthologized some creaky story. They never anthologized Rip Van Winkle. They never anthologized The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. They put in Poe's Fall of the House of Usher, which is extremely difficult to read. But they wouldn't put in any good Irving. But I kept reading these spectacular introductions to how fabulous Washington Irving is, and oh, he's so great, and oh, he's so that, and oh, he's so the other thing. And then I realized that his home was about 20 minutes north of New York City. And at this point, we were living, uh, I don't think we were living in the West Village anymore. I think we were living in Park Slope, Brooklyn at this point. And so I said to my husband one day, I said, Andrew, why don't we rent a car and go up and see Washington Irving's house? And he said, uh. and I said, look, I grew up out West and ye oldie colonially stuff is news to me. I mean, the oldest thing in Los Angeles is like, you know, the freeway. Everything else old has been torn down. So I, I kind of wanted to see some history. So we did. We rented a car and we went away for a three-day weekend and actually went to Croton, which is the place we eventually moved years later. And we went to Sunnyside, which is Washington Irving's home. And to say I fell in love with this man across space and time is an understatement. First off, his home, which I have pictures of on the blog, his home is beautiful and very Jefferson-like. He designed it. He had traveled a lot in Europe, which some people criticized him for, but I'll tell you about that in a minute. He traveled a lot in Europe and he saw all this fabulous architecture, Dutch architecture, Austrian architecture, German architecture, British architecture, French architecture. And when you look at his house, you can see all the pieces. Just like Jefferson did his kind of post-Greco-Roman classical thing, Washington Irving did this kind of, I, I don't know, it's kind of like this postmodern architectural feat. It's, it's amazing. And it's a very small, modest little home. But he did all these cool little MacGyver things in it. Like, for instance, he never married, but his older brother uh, faced financial ruin at a number of different points in his life and couldn't take care of all of his children. And some of his children were female and those women were not going to get married. You know, it was the dowry thing. It was the dowry problem. So these poor girls had no prospects and no support. So Washington Irving said, well, have them come up to my home and they can 
run the home when I'm off in Europe. So basically they have their own place. And so they came up there and, and did and, you know, took care of took care of things, took care of business when Irving was out of the country. However, the number one way for women to die back then was in a hearth fire. People were cooking over these open hearths, these big open stone fireplaces. And in the summer, women were wearing linen skirts. Now, for those of you who spin flax or have knitted with Euroflax, I don't think I have to tell you the stuff is flammable. Wool, not so much. Wool is pretty fire retardant, yay. But flax is just dried up plant. And if you've ever seen pictures of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, you probably have seen them, him with this enormous beard. That's because his first wife went up like a torch in their um, sitting room when she walked by the fireplace on a kind of a damp summer night and she was wearing a linen skirt. He pounced on her, rolled on the ground with her, tried desperately to save her and burnt his face rather badly in the process. She eventually did die and he eventually remarried, but he had that beard ever since because he was pretty disfigured in the fire. So Irving knows this. And so Irving invents a cook stove for them to use. He like figures out how to configure their open hearth in their kitchen so that the women won't torch themselves. He also figures out how to make a hot water heater so that they won't have to wash dishes in cold winter water, which trust me in New York is pretty damn cold. He, he had copper pipes running through his house with hot water because it was his nieces who were taking care of stuff for him. And I just thought, you know, that, that is the sign of a man who I, I dig. <laughs> that's just my kind of guy. The other thing that's kind of cool about Washington Irving is he's the first writer in America to actually make his living writing. You hear about all these other writers who they were clerks or they were journalists or they were, some of them were doctors. You know, they did all these other odd jobs and then eventually something happened and they were able to write or they wrote part-time, kind of John Grisham-like, you know, while he's being a lawyer, he's writing novels. Irving was the first to make his living writing fiction. So he's not a journalist. He's a fiction writer. And he's fabulously, fabulously well-known. He's just hugely famous and, and much beloved. I mean, people really dug his stuff. He, he sold a lot of books. Um, the criticism that he received was because he spent so much time in Europe, people were saying, oh, you know, you're not really an American anymore. Well, he he pretty much brushed that stuff aside. And, and then he started getting criticized because the sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon, which is the book that um, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle comes from, um, it, it draws on a lot of European fables and um, not myths, but, you know, folk tales and stuff like that. But the, the cool thing about it is that Irving absolutely makes these things American. Yes, Rip Van Winkle is very close to an old uh, German story. And The Legend of Sleepy Hollow shows up a couple different places in Europe. But he's writing from a very specific point in time. He's writing when the Dutch influence in New York is just dying out. 
And the Dutch history is starting to be forgotten. And so he kind of resurrects it. He's got this um, history book by a, a, a pseudonym, Diedrich Knickerbocker, which is the history of New York. And it's satire and it's funny, but it's also kind of true. You know, he makes fun of people, um, historical, factual people, but he's telling kind of these faux stories. So he insults a lot of people. It's kind of like when you find out that Dante's Inferno, the people who are being tortured in hell were actual people and people Dante knew who he wanted punished. So he stuck them in hell and tortured them in various circles. It's that same kind of thing. And Irving does such a clever job of it. But, and it's a big but, I hope you don't get frightened and turned off by his vocabulary. It is almost as hard as Shakespeare to listen to. And so I give you the same warning that I gave my students when I taught Hamlet and, you know, Othello and Taming of the Shrew and Macbeth and Romeo and Juliet and all that. It's going to wash over you. So let it. Just relax and go with it. You're not going to understand every word right away. You have to just kind of roll with it and let your brain tune in to this completely different syntax because he has a very Germanic syntax and he has a very old vocabulary. And by old, I mean he uses a lot of big words and some of them we just don't use anymore. At the same time, there will be moments where you go, oh, that's the Disney version. And it's true. The description of Ichabod Crane, which you will hear this week, is dead on what they drew in the Disney version of the Headless Horseman story. Um, it's not Johnny Depp, sadly. He, Johnny Depp is a much more attractive Ichabod Crane in his Tim Burton Sleepy Hollow thing that he did. Um, so don't, don't worry and I'm only going to play about 20 minutes today because I don't want to freak anybody out. But the, the other thing you might want to do is when the story starts, look at the time on your, your podcast aggregator or on your, uh, your iPod or on your, your um, iTunes or whatever it is that you're listening on. Take a look at the time code and go ahead and listen to the whole thing and then go back and listen to it again. Because I... I think you'll catch a lot of the humor the second time around because there is humor and he does he does tell you some interesting history about New York including the origin of the name of the village Terrytown which actually used to have a different name um if for those of you who aren't familiar with New York um geography Terrytown is where the Tappan Zee bridge crosses the Hudson River. And Tappan Zee is a very strange word unless, or two words, unless you're Dutch. And if you're in New York or you've been in New York and you wonder why in the world there is a dump called Fresh Kills on Staten Island, it's Dutch. And Fresh Kills is the word for fresh stream. A kill is a, another word for stream. So Peekskill is where Jan Peek lived and there's a stream there and fresh kills is obviously a fresh stream and it, it goes on from there there are lots of kills up in new york so 
Washington Irving is, he's just a hero to me. He started so many cool American traditions. He he brought over and Americanized some really cool stories that we wouldn't have had yet. And if you've never read any of his stuff, I recommend The Sketchbook. Because as my husband said, if you read any of these stories in isolation, you you don't really see all of Washington Irving. Like if you read... Um, or if you listen to Rip Van Winkle, his wife is a shrew and you start to go, my God, this guy was such a misogynist pig. I don't think I like Washington Irving very much. But the very next story is called The Good Wife. And it's a story about how wonderful this woman is and, and all that stuff. So he, he balances things. And there are parts of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow that do not modernize well. We aren't going to get to any of them today, but, but I think we will next week. Um, so just know that taking any of these stories in isolation is kind of like lifting a chapter from a book. You're not going to get the whole picture. And um, Washington Irving is a lot more complicated and deep than and funny than uh, just this one story would make you believe. The other thing I have to tell you is LibriVox, where we get these stories from, it's kind of hit or miss. You know, sometimes the readers are great. Sometimes the readers are passable. This reader is great. And aside from a few words that he mispronounces, this man was made to read this story. And so as a consequence, I'm going to play you the whole thing so you can hear him introduce himself and you can hear uh, the whole opening because it's it just flows so beautifully. Normally, I edit out all this stuff um, when I play stuff for you, but but this week I'm going to let it go. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the first third of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Chip in Tampa, Florida, on January 24th, 2006. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving Found among the papers of the late Dietrich Knickerbocker a pleasing land of drowsy head it was, of dreams that wave before the half-shut eye, and of gay castles in the clouds that pass, forever flushing round a summer sky. From Castle of Indolence In the bosom of one of those spacious coves which indent the eastern shore of the Hudson at that broad expansion of the river denominated by the ancient Dutch navigators the Tappan Zee, and where they always prudently shortened sail and implored the protection of St. Nicholas when they crossed, there lies a small market town or rural port, which by some is called Greensburg, but which is more generally and properly known by the name of Tarrytown. This name was given, we are told, in former days by the good housewives of the adjacent country, from the inveterate propensity of their husbands to linger about the village tavern on market days. Be that as it may, I do not vouch for the fact, but merely advert to it, for the sake of being precise and authentic. Not far from this village, perhaps about two miles, there is a little valley, or rather lap of land among high hills, 
which is one of the quietest places in the whole world. A small brook glides through it with just murmur enough to lull one into repose, and the occasional whistle of a quail or tapping of a woodpecker is almost the only sound that ever breaks in upon the uniform tranquility. I recollect that when a stripling my first exploit in squirrel shooting was in a grove of tall walnut trees that shades one side of the valley. I had wandered into it at noontime when all nature is peculiarly quiet and was startled by the roar of my own gun as it broke the Sabbath stillness around and was prolonged and reverberated by the angry echoes. If ever I should wish for a retreat whither I might steal from the world and its distractions and dream quietly away the remnant of a troubled life, I know of none more promising than this little valley. From the listless repose of the place and the peculiar character of its inhabitants, who are descendants from the original Dutch settlers, this sequestered glen has long been known by the name of Sleepy Hollow and its rustic lads are called the Sleepy Hollow Boys throughout all the neighboring country. A drowsy, dreamy influence seems to hang over the land, and to pervade the very atmosphere. Some say that the place was bewitched by a high German doctor during the early days of the settlement. Others that an old Indian chief, the prophet or wizard of his tribe, held his powwows there before the country was discovered by Master Henrik Hudson. Certain it is that the place still continues under the sway of some witching power that holds a spell over the minds of the good people, causing them to walk in a continual reverie. They are given to all kinds of marvelous beliefs, are subject to trances and visions, and frequently see strange sights and hear music and voices in the air. The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots and twilight superstitions. Stars shoot and meteors glare oftener across the valley than in any other part of the country, and the nightmare, with her whole ninefold, seems to make it the favorite scene of her gambols. The dominant spirit, however, that haunts this enchanted region and seems to be commander-in-chief of all the powers of the air is the apparition of a figure on horseback without a head. It is said by some to be the ghost of a Hessian trooper whose head had been carried away by a cannonball in some nameless battle during the Revolutionary War, and who is ever and anon seen by the country folk hurrying along in the gloom of night as if on the wings of the wind. His haunts are not confined to the valley, but extend at times to the adjacent roads, and especially to the vicinity of a church at no great distance. Indeed, certain of the most authentic historians of these parts, who have been careful in collecting and collating the floating facts concerning this specter, allege that the body of the trooper, having been buried in the churchyard, the ghost rides forth to the scene of battle in nightly quest of his head and that the rushing speed with which he sometimes passes along the hollow like a midnight blast is owing to his being belated and in a hurry to get back to the churchyard before daybreak. 
Such is the general purport of this legendary superstition, which has furnished materials for many a wild story in that region of shadows, and the specter is known at all the country firesides by the name of the Headless Horseman of Sleepy Hollow. It is remarkable that the visionary propensity I have mentioned is not confined to the native inhabitants of the valley, but is unconsciously imbibed by every one who resides there for a time. However wide awake they may have been before they entered that sleepy region, they are sure in a little time to inhale the witching influence of the air and begin to grow imaginative, to dream dreams, to see apparitions. I mention this peaceful spot with all possible laud, for it is in such little retired Dutch valleys, found here and there embosomed in the great state of New York, that population, manners, and customs remain fixed, while the great torrent of migration and improvement, which is making such incessant changes in other parts of this restless country, sweeps by them unobserved. They are like those little nooks of still water which border a rapid stream, where we may see the straw and bubble riding quietly at anchor, or slowly revolving in their mimic harbor, undisturbed by the rush of the passing current. Though many years have elapsed since I trod the drowsy shades of Sleepy Hollow, yet I question whether I should not still find the same trees, and the same families vegetating in its sheltered bosom. In this by-place of nature there abode in a remote period of American history, that is to say some thirty years since, a worthy white of the name of Ichabod Crane, who sojourned, or as he expressed it, tarried in Sleepy Hollow for the purpose of instructing the children of the vicinity. He was a native of Connecticut, a state which supplies the Union with pioneers for the mind as well as for the forest, and sends forth yearly its legions of frontier woodmen and country schoolmasters. The cognomen of Crane was not inapplicable to his person. He was tall but exceedingly lank, with narrow shoulders, long arms and legs, hands that dangled a mile out of his sleeves, feet that might have served for shovels, and his whole frame most loosely hung together. His head was small and flat at top, with huge ears, large green glassy eyes, and a long snipe nose, so that it looked like a weathercock perched atop his spindle neck to tell which way the wind blew. To see him striding along the profile of a hill on a windy day with his clothes bagging and fluttering about him, one might have mistaken him for the genius of famine descending upon the earth, or some scarecrow eloped from a cornfield. His schoolhouse was a low building of one large room, rudely constructed of logs, the windows partly glazed and partly patched with leaves of old copybooks. It was most ingeniously secured at vacant hours by a withe twisted in the handle of the door, and stakes set against the window shutters, so that, though a thief might get in with perfect ease, he would find some embarrassment in getting out, an idea most probably borrowed by the architect Jost van Houten from the mystery of an eel-pot. The schoolhouse stood in a rather lonely but pleasant situation, 
just at the foot of a woody hill with a brook running close by and a formidable birch tree growing at one end of it. From hence the low murmur of his pupils' voices, conning over their lessons, might be heard on a drowsy summer's day, like the hum of a beehive, interrupted now and then by the authoritative voice of the master, in the tone of menace or command or peradventure by the appalling sound of the birch, as he urged some tardy loiterer along the flowery path of knowledge. Truth to say, he was a conscientious man, and ever bore in mind the golden maxim, spare the rod and spoil the child. Ichabod Crane's scholars certainly were not spoiled. I would not have it imagined, however, that he was one of those cruel potentates of the school who joy in the smart of their subjects. On the contrary, he administered justice with discrimination rather than severity, taking the burden off the backs of the weak and laying it on those of the strong. Your mere puny stripling that winced at the least flourish of the rod was passed by with indulgence, but the claims of justice were satisfied by inflicting a double portion on some little tough, wrong-headed, broad-skirted Dutch urchin who sulked and swelled and grew dogged and sullen beneath the birch. All this he called doing his duty by their parents, and he never inflicted a chastisement without following it by the assurance, so consolatory to the smarting urchin, that he would remember it and thank him for it the longest day he had to live. When school hours were over, he was even the companion and playmate of the larger boys, and on holiday afternoons would convoy some of the smaller ones home, who happened to have pretty sisters or good housewives for mothers, noted for the comforts of their cupboard. Indeed, it behooved him to keep on good terms with his pupils. The revenue arising from his school was small, and would have been scarcely sufficient to furnish him with the daily bread, for he was a huge feeder, and though lank he had the dilating powers of an anaconda, but to help out his maintenance he was, according to country custom in those parts, boarded and lodged at the houses of the farmers whose children he instructed. With these he lived successively a week at a time, thus going the rounds of the neighborhood with all his worldly effects tied up in a cotton handkerchief. That all this might not be too onerous on the purses of his rustic patrons, who are apt to consider the costs of schooling a grievous burden, and schoolmasters as mere drones, he had various ways of rendering himself both useful and agreeable. He assisted the farmers occasionally in the lighter labors of their farms, helped to make hay, mended the fences, took the horses to water, drove the cows from pasture, and cut wood for the winter fire. He laid aside, too, all the dominant dignity and absolute sway with which he lorded it in his little empire, the school, and became wonderfully gentle and ingratiating. He found favor in the eyes of the mothers by petting the children, particularly the youngest, and, like the lion bold, which will whom so magnanimously the lamb did hold, he would sit with a child upon one knee and rock a cradle with his foot for hours together. In addition to his other vocations, he was the singing master of the neighborhood, and picked up many bright shillings by instructing the young folks in psalmody. It was a matter of no little vanity to him on Sundays to take his station in front of the church gallery, 
with a band of chosen singers, where, in his own mind, he completely carried away the palm from the parson. Certain it is, his voice resounded far above all the rest of the congregation, and there are particular quavers still to be heard in that church, and which may even be heard a half-mile off, quite to the opposite side of the mill-pond on a still Sunday morning, which are said to be legitimately descended from the nose of Ichabod Crane. Thus, by divers little makeshifts, and in that ingenious way which is commonly denominated by hook and by crook, the worthy pedagogue got on tolerably enough, and was thought by all who understood nothing of the labor of headwork to have a wonderfully easy life of it. The schoolmaster is generally a man of some importance in the female circle of a rural neighborhood, being considered a kind of idle, gentlemanly personage, of vastly superior taste and accomplishments to the rough country swains, and, indeed, inferior in learning only to the parson. His appearance, therefore, is apt to occasion some little stir at the tea-table of a farmhouse and the addition of a supernumerary dish of cakes or sweetmeats or, peradventure, the parade of a silver teapot. Our man of letters, therefore, was peculiarly happy in the smiles of all the country damsels. How he would figure among them in the churchyard between services on Sundays, gathering grapes for them in the wild vines that overran the surrounding trees, reciting for their amusement all the epitaphs on the tombstones, or sauntering with a whole bevy of them along the banks of the adjacent mill-pond, while the more bashful country bumpkins hung sheepishly back, envying his superior elegance and address. From his half-itinerant life also he was a kind of travelling gazette, carrying the whole budget of local gossip from house to house, so that his appearance was always greeted with satisfaction. He was, moreover, esteemed by the women as a man of great erudition, for he had read several books quite through, and was the perfect master of Cotton Mather's History of New England Witchcraft, in which, by the way, he most firmly and potently believed. He was, in fact, an odd mixture of shrewdness and simple credulity. His appetite for the marvellous and his powers of digesting it were equally extraordinary, and both had been increased by his residence in this spellbound region. No tale was too gross or monstrous for this capricious swallow. It was often his delight, after his school was dismissed in the afternoon, to stretch himself on the rich bed of clover bordering the little brook that whimpered by his schoolhouse, and there con over old Mather's direful tales, until the gathering dusk of evening made the printed page a mere mist before his eyes. Then, as he wended his way by swamp and stream and awful woodland to the farmhouse where he happened to be quartered, every sound of nature at that witching hour fluttered and excited imagination. The moan of the whippoorwill from the hillside, the boding cry of the tree-toad, that harbinger of storm, the dreary hooting of the screech-owl, or the sudden rustling in the thicket of birds frightened from their roost.
The fireflies, too, which sparkled most vividly in the darkest place, now and then startled him, as one of uncommon brightness would stream across his path, and if, by chance, a huge blockhead of a beetle came winging his blundering flight against him, the poor varlet was ready to give up the ghost with the idea that he was struck with a witch's token. His only resource on such occasions, either to drown thought or drive away evil spirits, was to sing psalm tunes, and the good people of Sleepy Hollow, as they sat by their doors of an evening, were often filled with awe at hearing his nasal melody, in linked sweetness long drawn out, floating from the distant hill or along the dusky road. Another of his sources of fearful pleasure was to pass long winter evenings with the old Dutch wives as they sat spinning by the fire, with a row of apples roasting and spluttering along the hearth, and to listen to their marvelous tales of ghosts and goblins and haunted fields and haunted brooks and haunted bridges and haunted houses and particularly of the headless horseman, or galloping Hessian of the hollow, as they sometimes called him. He would delight them equally by his anecdotes of witchcraft and of the direful omens and portentous sights and sounds in the air, which prevailed in the earlier times of Connecticut, and would frighten them woefully with speculations upon comets and shooting stars, and with the alarming fact that the world did absolutely turn around, and that they were half the time topsy-turvy. But if there were a pleasure in all this, while snuggling, cuddling in the chimney-corner of a chamber that was all of a ruddy glow from the crackling wood-fire, and where, of course, no specter dared to show its face, it was dearly purchased by the terrors of his subsequent walk homeward. What fearful shapes and shadows beset this path, amid the dim and ghastly glare of a snowy night! With what wistful look did he eye every trembling ray of light streaming across the waste fields from some distant window? How often was he appalled by some shrub covered with snow which, like a sheeted specter, beset his very path? How often did he shrink with curdling awe at the sound of his own steps on the frosty crust beneath his feet, and dread to look over his shoulder lest he should behold some uncouth being tramping close behind him? And how often was he thrown into complete dismay by some rushing blast, howling among the trees, in the idea that it was the galloping hessian of one of his nightly scourings. All these, however, were mere terrors of the night, phantoms of the mind that walk in darkness, and though he had seen many specters in his time, and had been more than once beset by Satan in divers shapes in his lonely perambulations, Yet daylight put an end to all these evils, and he would have passed a pleasant life of it, in spite of the devil and all his works, if his path had not been crossed by a being that causes more perplexity to mortal man than ghosts, goblins, and the whole race of witches put together, and that was... 
And that was. What do you think that was? I had a hard time editing this without getting getting it all glitched up. It's a woman, which is just perfect.、Uh, next week we'll meet Miss Van Tassel, who has so smitten、uh, Ichabod, the schoolteacher, and、um, and we'll get on with more of the、uh, galloping Hessian, the headless horseman. I don't know if you know the Hessians were. Um, they fought in、uh, a couple different wars. I think the French and Indian War, as well as the、uh, Revolutionary War. I'll get more information for you on the Hessians for next week. The other thing I wanted to make note of—I didn't want it to just fly by—is there's a reference to Cotton Mather, Increase Mather, and and his son Cotton Mather, both figure rather prominently in early American、uh, writing. They were、uh, involved in the witch hunt. Well, Increase was, and Cotton was involved in the、um, the Second Great Awakening. He is、uh, along with Jonathan Edwards, who not the modern day Jonathan Edwards, the old one.、Uh, they were responsible for scaring scaring the bejesus out of people. Literally,、uh, they. <clears throat> There's a famous sermon called "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God," and if I can find someone, maybe this guy who reads this story, to read it to you, you you will not believe it. It it's terrifying, and you you have to kind of put your mind in、um, you know the early 1700s and remember that when these people talked about going to hell, they meant it. It they. We're gonna burn for eternity, and so he's、uh, Jonathan Edwards, this guy who's similar in his tone to、uh, Cotton Mather, was literally up there saying,、um, "God is greatly displeased, and is holding you over the flames of hell like a spider on its thread, and it's only because he really couldn't care less that he doesn't just drop you." Now the people who were listening to these sermons were generally standing for hours at a time, hours at a time、uh, on a Sunday morning. And when these guys preached, people were known to pass out and get hysterical and all sorts of things.、Um, it was called the Second Great Awakening because it was the Second Great Puritan Awakening. They were trying to、um, to get people back to a, a more strict Puritan doctrine, which,、um, as you know, in America. Strict only lasts so long before people kind of start to push at the edges and rebel a bit, and that's exactly what happened. But Cotton Mather is an interesting guy, and he he did write the this history of witchcraft in America, and it's out there and available. And I'm going to link to、um, a picture of him and some information on him. But it's、um, it's also an interesting note that Miss Manners, unless I am. Gravely mistaken, I believe Miss Manners is a direct descendant of Increase and Cotton Mather, which just adds kind of a, a, an interesting layer to her tone and where she where she kind of got her persona from. Because Judith Martin, who who writes the Miss Manners column, is a very very funny and a very well educated woman, but she is very very East Coast Puritan stock, you know, D A R. Thing,、uh, so I didn't want that to fly by, or for you to think that that was just、um, a made-up name. Because honestly, who names their child Cotton? And and furthermore, who names their child Increase? 
It's it's just a horror. Those children would be so teased in school. I wonder if they were teased in school back then. Oh, I don't know. Kate and I had a great conversation about the naming of children and uh, what can happen when you when you misname your kid. In fact, you should send me in stories. I I knew uh, when I was growing up in Riverside, California, there were two girls in Anaheim with the last name of Trout, and their first names were Rainbow and Brooke. And I just think that's mean. So, so wow, that was a digression. So, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, the first third, there'll be about another 20, 25 minutes next week, and then another 20, 25 minutes the week following. Uh, send in any ideas you have for how I should dye my shawl, because I need to get moving on that. I'm going to do that this weekend, I think. And um, I hope you all have a great week. This was a lot of fun. I'm, well, as I said, I'm in love with Washington Irving, so this was very nice for me. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you soon. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com or craftlit.libsyn.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, and libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. And do remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.